Well, take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me once again to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, as we continue our walk through the book of Hebrews, we find ourselves moving right along, and we're in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 this morning. If you have been with us over the past few weeks as we have looked at the book of Hebrews, you might have started to discern the tone of the book. And I say this to you often, if you want to understand Scripture, you must not only see the words of Scripture, you must hear the tone of Scripture. God does not speak in monotone. God speaks different ways in different times and different tones of voice all throughout Scripture. And as I was reading the book of Hebrews over and over and over months before we started this series, I was trying to discern what is the tone of this book. And the reality is, it is a tone of strong exhortation and warnings. It is pleading with you to stay confident in Jesus, to hold fast to Jesus, to not let go of Jesus It is pleading with you with warnings to say, if you do not hold fast to Jesus, you will not make it until the end. And so you sense in every chapter these strong exhortations and strong warnings. But if we're not careful, we might miss the heart behind those exhortations and warnings. I have to say, it wasn't until the last couple of weeks that I began to discern something here that I had not seen before I started preaching this. And that is that behind every exhortation, behind every plea, behind every warning that the Bible is giving in your life is a heart of a father who knows what is best for you and longs for you to experience what is best. Behind every warning and every exhortation is a broken heart of a father who sees your wanderings and who sees your desire for something. He sees the brokenness of unfulfilled dreams and hopes. And he just longs for you to come and find all of the fulfillment of your life in him. Behind every verse is the heart of a father. I really believe that as we get into this portion of scripture, particularly last week and this week, we need to sense the heart of the father as we see it in the story of the prodigal son. I know you know this story, but getting the idea of this story helps us to see the heart of God here. Remember, that story is really about three different sons. There is the prodigal son, the one we know the most, who just needed to get out of the father's house. It just felt so confining, and there were so many rules in the father's house, and he had to work so hard in the father's house, and the father was always bossing him around, and he just felt like, surely there's something better outside of the father's house And so he shames his father and asks for his inheritance and he leaves in hopes to have all of his dreams fulfilled. And he goes and spends all of his money and enjoys all of the things that were promised and ends up absolutely miserable. He lost everything and he realizes at the moment that all the hopes that were outside of the father's house and all of the things that seemed so appealing weren't that great at all. And in great fanfare, he went and experienced everything that the world has to offer, and it was absolutely meaningless. And so, in the moment of absolute desperation, he comes to this realization that he would rather be home and a servant than be away anywhere else. He even comes back home and says, I I don't even think I'm going to get to be a son, but if I could just be a servant and get back home, I'd rather come home. 
the whole point is that the prodigal son realizes that life is better in the father's house. That all the other appealing things out there are really not as great as they might seem. And he's welcomed and embraced back as a son and gets fully forgiven and receives the inheritance once again. There's another son in this story. He's the older son. Now, he's the rule follower. Some of you love to rebel spectacularly like the prodigal son, and you've done that. Maybe you're doing it now. Some of you prefer to follow the rules and to look as if everything's going good, but your heart's not with Jesus. You don't love God. You don't love the things of God, and this was the older brother. He stayed home. He was the responsible one. He felt righteous and good about himself because he did not do what the younger brother did. But when the younger brother gets home and he sees the attention he gets, he reveals his own rebellion. And at the end of the story, that brother, the rule-following brother, is outside of the house, missing all the benefits in the father's house. They both walked away from the father. But it's also a story of another son. We see this son at the beginning of that chapter, and that is the son who also left his father, but not out of rebellion, out of love. It is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who left his father to come, and the reason he left heaven to come to earth and took upon himself our flesh is that he might go and pursue those who were outside of the father's house that they might come back into the father's house again. Because what scripture constantly tries to teach us is this. The allure of sin always disappoints. I had someone come to me after the first service and they say, why is it that we can't get into our heads that Jesus makes everything simpler and sin makes everything more complicated? And I said to them, if I could just get everybody to know that one truth, we'd be much better off that sin makes everything complicated, amen? There is simplicity that is found in a relationship with Jesus. God's desire, because all of us are either quiet or loud prodigals. We've all walked away from the Father's house. God's heart is to get us back. Why? Because everything good is in the Father's house. And this text just kind of oozes with this family language, this heart of God that wants to rescue us and allow us to find life in the Father's house. Our passage this morning, if you look at chapter 3, verse 1, begins with a therefore. And the reason is, is because it's immediately flowing out of this text we've looked at for the last two weeks. And that text is a reminder that God's desire, chapter 2, verse 10, listen, what's God's heart? To bring many sons to glory. To, to bring us back to the life that we were created to live where we were crowned with glory and we experience the fullness of all that God has to offer. God created us for something good and glorious. All lost because of sin. But God's heart's to get us back there. And so how does he do that? Well, he sends this hero. Chapter 2, verse 10. Jesus Christ who would come and he would suffer for our sake that he might take upon himself the consequences of our sin and as a result of that we might be saved through his life and death and resurrection. And the result of that is that we're delivered from our greatest enemy, that we are freed from our fears and we're brought back into a relationship with the Father. Remember I showed you last week in the end of chapter 2 there's all this family language that God's desire is to bring sons to glory. 
God is, Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. He's come to be a brother to us. He's come to say, my brothers, my sisters are lost in sin. I want to rescue them and bring them back. It says that I will tell of your name to my brothers. And then it says in verse 13, I and the children that God has given me. Verse 14 talks about the children who share in flesh and blood and the offspring of Abraham and that Christ is a brother to us in every respect. It's this family language. And then he continues that same idea of the father calling us into his house in chapter three. So listen to what he says in Hebrews three, verses one through six. If you're there, say amen. It says this. Therefore, based on everything Christ has done for you, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. He's the apostle and the high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So this idea at the end of chapter 2 that God is not just trying to rally the troops. He's building a family, okay? So God in his fatherly heart is calling you to himself because his heart is broken when he sees you leaving the house because of the allure of sin and he sees the brokenness and the dysfunction and how complicated your life is going to be. So he sends Jesus to to get a family together and then that's continued right here in chapter three by saying this, God is building a house and he's building it through Jesus Christ, one person at a time, God is building the house. And Jesus is the one who is building the house. He is the Lord over the house. He's the only way to the house. And so with all of that in mind, there is this exhortation in chapter 3, all focused on two words. The two key words in this text are found in verse 1 where it says this, consider Jesus. It's the only command in all of this passage. So if you mark in your Bibles, that's what you circle. Consider Jesus. Everything revolves around that. So then the question for us becomes, well, what is the connection between God wanting to build a house and bring you into his house where you find everything you long for and this idea of considering Jesus? Well, the answer is simple. Jesus is the only way into the house. So, so if everything you want is in the house, if everything you long for is in God's house, found in a relationship with him, and Jesus is the only way to get that and to get back there because Jesus has come to find us in our rebellion and bring us back, then the one thing we must do then is consider Jesus. Now, when we think about this idea of considering Jesus, uh, I think we might have a a couple of wrong thoughts. We might, first of all, think this is a phrase for unbelievers. Uh, 
Have you ever considered Jesus? As if Jesus is some supplemental insurance, right? I, I know you've got this and this, but have you ever considered adding to your life Jesus? We tend to talk about Jesus this way. Uh, have you ever thought about kind of keeping your normal life and then adding a little Jesus? It doesn't work that way. You don't add Jesus to your life. Jesus becomes your life. Like, have you ever considered doing this or that? that that's not what it's saying here at all. It's speaking to believers because he calls them holy brothers and those who share in the heavenly calling. And the idea of consider Jesus means to fixate upon Jesus. To keep your eyes focused on Jesus, to give your full attention continually, day after day, moment by moment, to Jesus Christ. It is a call to make Jesus the center of your life, to have him always before you. David says, I have set the Lord continually before me. Therefore, he is at my right hand and I will not be shaken. It is this idea of putting Jesus continually before you. This word consider is used a couple of times in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, when Jesus is talking about anxiety. And he says to this, he says, consider the lilies. They don't worry about what they wear, but they look more beautiful than any of you. He says, consider the ravens. They don't worry about what they're going to eat, but they're always fed. Why? Because I got it. But when he says, consider the lilies and consider the ravens, what he's saying actually is this. In the midst of your anxiety, why don't you stop and go look at some lilies? And why don't you just think about them for a while and realize that they're beautiful because God's taken care of them. Why don't you just stop for a minute and and look at a raven and, and realize that that raven's not stressed out. It's just good. It's just kind of doing his thing and flying and it's just not worried about food because I'm providing for it. In other words, it's saying look at those things and learn from them. Allow them to teach you. Allow them to capture your heart. And he's using the same word here. He's saying, listen, in the midst of all of the the stuff of life and the anxiety and the worry and all of the, the angst in life of trying to find out real meaning in real life, stop, stop and just consider Jesus. Look at him and learn from him and let him teach you how it is that you get to the Father's house and find everything you're looking for there. Really, to say consider Jesus is the same thing it says in chapter 2, verse 1. Remember that? Where he says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. He comes out of this glorious text about Jesus in chapter 1, and he says this, pay close attention to Jesus. If you don't, you're going to drift away. And then he gives another glorious text in chapter 2, and then he comes out of that, and he says, fixate on Jesus. Keep your mind on Jesus. And then he's going to come to uh, the end of this little passage in verse six and he says, hold fast to Jesus. And then in chapter 12, he's going to say, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Why? Because the entire book of Hebrews is saying the same thing to you. Hold fast to Jesus. Hold on to Jesus. Don't let go of Jesus. The greatest battle of your life, listen to me, the number one battle of your life is just holding fast to Jesus. There are a thousand things in life every day that are leading you away from Jesus. And what this text does is what my small children have done to me from time to time when they're trying to talk to me and they know I'm not listening and they will put their little hand under my chin and just turn my chin to them. Like, look at me, I'm talking to you. 
You know what the book of Hebrews is doing? It's grabbing your chin right now and it's going, stop looking over there. Stop. It's an illusion. It's no good. You're gonna go over there and be miserable and disappointed. Keep looking at me. And you know what? Jesus has to do it like 200 times a day. He just grabs our chin and just points us toward Jesus and said, this is where you need to be looking. Everything is there moment by moment, day by day. Just fixate on Jesus. And you know the reason? It's because the only way you get to the house. That's it. God's building a house. He wants you to be a part of it. And this text is reminding us everything you've ever longed for is in the house, but you, you gotta keep your eyes on Jesus to get a hold of it. So look at what he says to us. The first thing he tells us about the house is this. He says that your identity is found in the house. Your identity is found in the house. So one of the reasons people will run from the house, literally, figuratively, spiritually, is because they want to find themselves. So they have this search to figure out who they are, and it seems sometimes that the only way I can figure out who I am is to break off the bonds that have been put on me. I was raised in church, and I know that side. I need to figure out the other side. I need to find myself. And the only thing that happens is everyone just ends up losing themselves because the further you get from the house, the harder it is to understand yourself. And so what it's saying here is that when you come to the house, it's there that you find yourself. And look at how it says that in verse one. It says, therefore, because you've been saved by Jesus Christ, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. You know, it's just amazing. When you think about yourself, like just think about your week. Think about what you thought about and think about what you did and think about your motives and all of that. If you were looking for one word to describe yourself, would you pick holy out of the word bank? Like, is that the one you would look at and say, you know, as I'm thinking about myself, I need one word. What, oh, it's holy. That's how I feel. No, let me just answer. No, you wouldn't. I, I can't imagine. If you, if you would, you're completely deceived. You're probably older brother, right? Like, this is, this, is, this is not the way we describe ourselves because you don't see yourselves as pure and clean and righteous before God. Like the enemy continues to bring condemnation upon us because our sin makes us feel so dirty and so distant and so dysfunctional. But listen to this, if you have come to faith in Jesus Christ and you have trusted him alone as your salvation, when God the Father looks at you, he sees you as holy, righteous, pure. Literally, he has taken the very perfect life of Jesus Christ and credited it to your account so it is as if the Father has on these glasses and when he looks at you, he sees you through the lens of the perfection of Jesus Christ. He sees you as holy. And his desire is not only to make you holy, but to bring you into a family. So he calls you holy brothers, a word here that actually means siblings. It really does mean brothers and sisters. God is gathering together children who are not only connected to him, they're connected to each other. So can I just say this to you? Your identity as a believer is not just found in the fact that you're a child of God, but that you are a part of the children of God. There is really no true identity that you will find as a believer if you are not connected to a local body of believers. Like you got, you got to learn how to be a family 
and you learn it in the church. In my experience, the people who do not connect themselves to the church don't connect themselves because they don't want to do the hard work of being in a family. It's hard, isn't it? But that's where you grow, and that's where you figure out yourself, and that's where God shows you your dysfunctions, and that's where God uses you, and we'll see that in next week's text. So God is gathering a holy family, and he says, if you've trusted Christ, you're a holy sibling in the house, and you have a heavenly calling. I really, I spent a lot of time thinking about this, and I think there's two parts to heavenly calling. You have a calling from heaven, and you have a calling to heaven. Meaning the only reason you're a believer is because from heaven, God called you. John 6 tells us this twice, that the only reason you ever had a desire for God is because there was a calling from heaven. And you know what encourages me this morning is it's happening right now. Right now, some of you are sensing something you haven't sensed maybe ever before or in a long time. You're sensing a desire for Jesus. And you don't even know what to do with it right now. You're going, I don't know what's happening to me. I, I'm enjoying this. Like this is, this is feeding me. I'm, I'm feeling something here. Maybe for the first time. Let me tell you what that is. That's heaven calling. That's the very spirit of God saying, I want you to come and be a part of the family. And so listen, if that's happening to you this morning, that's because God wants to save you today. Or God wants to draw you closer today. It's happening right now. And so your response is at the end of the service to come and talk to one of us and let us lead you in what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So you get this calling from heaven and it's a calling to heaven, to home. It's a calling to say, listen, stop running over there and come back to me because it is here that you will find all of your identity. It's here that you're gonna come to understand yourself. There is a heavenly calling from God on your life to home where you will find everything you need. You know, I think about this identity that we've been given, this fact that we're declared holy and we've got this family and he's bringing us back into the house. I just can't help but to think that if you took everything good in your life, everything good in your life, and you multiplied it by 100, okay? So let's take your finances and let's multiply it by 100. Let's take your gifts and multiply it by 100. Let's take your business, your schoolwork, your dreams. Let's multiply all of it by 100. So all of you have an abundance of all of this stuff. Let me tell you that. If all of that happens and you don't have Jesus, you've got nothing. Nothing. Like the prodigal taught us this. He got all the money, and with the money... He got everything he had ever longed for and he ended up with nothing. The greatest things in your life are all things you get in the Father's house. It is there in which you find your identity and Jesus is the one that is leading you there to discover who you really are and find out that there is a glorious and good calling upon your life. You find your identity in the house. You also, I think it shows us here, find your sufficiency in the house. Meaning, once you begin looking to Jesus and walking with him, you will discover slowly that everything your heart has ever longed for is found right there in Jesus. You'll find that he's sufficient. It refers to Jesus with two words. Look at it there. It says, first of all, Jesus is the apostle and the high priest. I believe it does that because in those two words, it identifies what we need most. 
we need a word from God and we need a way to God. So we need the God who created us to speak truth into our lives because we don't know it without him. We don't even have ears to hear and so we need God to open our ears and give us a word and then we need him to not only say to us, you're lost, you're aimless, you're miserable, you need help, we want him then to get us out by showing us the way. So I find that churches tend to go on one side of this. The one side is, I'm gonna preach the word to you and I want you to know what a miserable, poor, wretched sinner you are, which you need to hear. But we wanna come on the other side of that and say, but there's a way home. And so Jesus as the apostle and the high priest is both. He's the word of God and he is the way to God. So he has been sent by God to represent God and speak to us, and he has been sent back to God to represent us to God. So it is an amazing thought. As an apostle, he represents God to us. As a priest, he represents us to God. And in those two roles, look, he has been faithful to the one who appointed him. He was a faithful apostle. He is a faithful high priest. And then it gives us an example of this. And the reason it does this is because As we've talked about, these Jews uh, that he's writing to know the Old Testament, they love the Old Testament, and they revere the Old Testament heroes as they should. So he brings up Moses. He goes, you know, Moses, in a sense, was also an apostle and a high priest. He was. You can see this in Exodus 32 where Moses was summoned up to the mountain to get a word from God to bring back down to the people of God as an apostle. But then he gets back down and realized the people had made a golden calf and were prostituting themselves. And so what does Moses do? Moses then intercedes on behalf of them to save them because God was gonna destroy them. So he's an apostle and and a priest is really how he functions. So it's taking this idea, you understand that Moses did this, right? And you revere him. Well, can I just tell you that Moses was great and you should revere him, but Jesus is better in every single way. In every single measurable way, Jesus is superior in a few ways. Look at what it says. First, Jesus is worthy of much more glory because, verse 3, because the builder of the house gets more glory than the house itself. So Moses would like the house, and he was bringing people to the house. And just when you say, well, that's a glorious house, you realize, wait, The house exists because someone built the house. In other words, Moses was great, but Jesus created Moses. Moses was faithful in the house, but Jesus was building the house. This is Jesus' house. It tells us next that Moses was the faithful servant of the house, but Jesus was the son of the house. So Moses served well, but it's only the son who can come and bring us back into the family to adopt us into the people of God. And then I love the one in verse five where it says, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. I want you to notice something. It says to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, meaning this, Moses spoke about something that was coming later. Now, I've told you this before. I have this discipleship group. And uh, I've got one high school guy and four eighth grade boys, and these guys are sharp, I'm just telling you. So we were talking a couple of weeks ago, they were reading through the Gospel of John, and they made an observation that I had not made. I didn't tell them that, but I had not made this observation. 
they said, have you noticed how often Jesus talks about Moses? And I said, well, certainly I have. And they said, well, why does Jesus keep talking about Moses? And he always does it to the religious leaders. And I said, well, I was already thinking about that. Let me tell you exactly why this is the case. And what we discovered is the reason Jesus kept bringing Moses back up in John 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, all the way here, is because these religious leaders were obsessed with Moses but hated Jesus. And what Jesus wanted them to understand is this. If you loved Moses, you'd love me. And if you knew Moses, you would know me because Moses talked about me. So you don't love Moses or me because Moses was all about me. So that's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, Moses testified about something later. Moses knew that there was something better to come and the better thing to come was Jesus. He testified about the Christ, the promised Messiah, the one who would come later. So he's saying what you need is a word from God and a way to God and all of that is found in the house of God and the only way you get there is is because God has sent an apostle and a high priest to lead you back into the house of God. That is the reason you have at the very end this incredible phrase, look at the end of verse six where it says this, and we are, we are his house. So can we just stop here for a minute and be reminded of this good news, okay? Everything you were created for and everything that your heart longs for is found in the house, and this says right here, it's possible for you to be in the house. Listen, it doesn't matter if you've been a spectacular prodigal and you have gone on and done the craziest things imaginable, there's an invitation to get back to the house. And the Father is ready to welcome you back into the house. So you don't have to put your head down and say, well, I just want to be a servant. No, he is ready to clothe you in righteousness, put a ring on your finger and say, you're my son. The the past is the past. Let's start over and you get all the inheritance again. So you can do that this morning. The more subtler difficulty is those of you who just always come to church and you do the right thing and you're the rule follower and everybody thinks you're great. But if you're honest, you don't love Jesus. You're an older brother, and to be honest with you, you get a little mad when those rebellious people get attention because you should get attention because you've been here while they were out squandering all of the Father's possessions. So you're self-righteous and also outside of the house and going to hell. Because it doesn't matter how much you're in the house if you don't love the Father of the house. Like if you don't have love for Jesus, you can come to church every week and fool everybody but you're still not a part of the house. But here's what I love about the way this text ends. It says this, it is possible for you if you will come to Jesus to know that you're a part of the house and your identity is in the house and your sufficiency is in the house. But the last thing he says is this, your security is in the house. It is in the house where you felt settled in your relationship with God. It is in the house where you know that you have found the place where you belong. It is in the house in which all of a sudden everything you've longed for and every question you've had gets answered and fulfilled in the house. Now it would be great to stop right there, but the text doesn't. The text uses a word that makes Baptist really nervous. If. Look at it. It says, we are of his house. Listen. If. Indeed, we hold fast our confidence and boasting in our hope. So that phrase is saying the same thing he already said in Consider Jesus. 
What's our confidence? Our confidence is that Jesus alone can satisfy every longing of my heart. My boasting is Jesus alone, Jesus alone. That's my confidence in boasting. It says this. We are of his house if we hold on to Jesus and that confidence until the end. Now, this is a hard verse for us to accept. Listen, but it's really not a hard verse to understand. I can't tell you the pressure I often feel when I come to verses like this because people will say to me, well, pastor, certainly you can make that mean something different than it seems to mean. Like, pastor, you study the Greek, right? You know that it doesn't mean what it says. Well, let me just tell you something. This is about as simple as you can get, and what it means is exactly what it says. It means that those who are in the house are the ones who are holding fast to Jesus. That's what it means. It's not saying that you can lose your salvation. It's not saying that you get to heaven by your works. It's saying this, that the only ones that make it into the house are those who are holding on to Jesus because Jesus is the only way to the house. Every day, every moment, you get what's in the house by getting there through the Son, Jesus Christ. And I know we get uncomfortable with this, but this is what it's saying. And the reason it's pleading with you to hold on to Jesus is because it knows the real evidence of whether someone is in the house is this. Are they holding on to Jesus? So I was thinking in the first service, I hadn't planned to say this, but I kept thinking about a story that I know I have said here before, but it sticks with me in this moment. I was about to do a funeral of the grandfather of a man in a previous church, and I'd been in this church for 10 years. I knew this family well. It was a faithful family, and I knew the grandfather. I'd been with him on a couple of social occasions. I'd even been to their house. We had a time in which we were trying to find everybody who is a member of our church, and the craziest thing, and try to get them to come back to church. I know it's crazy, and, and we pled with him, and he wouldn't come to church. He just didn't care about church and he didn't care about the things of God and there was just no heartbeat for God and it was time for me to do his funeral so I was prepared and I was going to talk about the need for Jesus and I was going to be vague about his relationship with Jesus because there wasn't one I knew there wasn't one and then right before I was about to do the funeral I was standing in this little parlor funeral home brother Bill you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about and what I can envision I'm standing there I'm getting ready to go in the family comes in and says, Pastor, Pastor, we have incredible news. You're not going to believe this. We were going through old books in my granddad's study, and we found in his Bible a little piece of paper. And it was the bulletin from the day that he got baptized, and it was a bulletin from the day that he joined the church. Pastor, finally we know that granddad is with Jesus. To be honest with you, that was a sadder moment to me then than I was just the moment before. Because the moment before, I was confident because he just didn't love Jesus that he didn't have a relationship with Jesus. But now, I was becoming aware that these people did not understand the reality of what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ and get to the house. What it means is this, you hold fast to Jesus. Like until the very end, moment by moment, day by day, you hold on to Jesus. You don't hold on to a bulletin. You hold on to Jesus. 
And the reason this is not getting saved by works is because the only way you get there is by holding on to Jesus. Jesus gets you there, but what you must do is keep holding on to Jesus. And the entire book of Hebrews is gonna keep pleading with us to evaluate yourself whether Jesus is that much of a part of your life. Because everything your heart longs for, all of your identity, sufficiency, security is found in the house. Everything you need is there, and the only way you get it is by fixating moment by moment on Jesus. By spending time daily in his word, by meditating on scripture, by being in a church, by having conversations with other believers about Jesus, by giving financially, knowing that your heart goes where your money is, all of these things you're doing constantly taking out all of the distractions to say, I, just, I, gotta, I gotta just keep my mind and my eyes focused on Jesus. And as you do, moment by moment, you experience everything you have in the house and you get to the house for eternity because Jesus got you there. So the two simple words are everything we need to know about this text. You just keep considering Jesus. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.